With the news media covering increasingly more news about data breaches and security and the use of personal data in ways that invade people's privacy, you need to know how to keep your business's data, not to mention your own personal data, safe from hacks and your business operating in the most secure environment. Otherwise, this can not only hurt your business reputation, it can cost you clients. Welcome to Data Security and Privacy with the Privacy Professor, we are here to help you mitigate potential damages and losses before the hackers even have your number. Now, here is the Privacy Professor and your host, Rebecca Harold. Hello, and welcome to Data Security and Privacy with the Privacy Professor. I'm Rebecca Harold, your host. Thank you for joining us. Welcome to the 52nd episode of my show. I use my show to help raise awareness of information security and privacy risks and issues. And I also provide worldwide listeners with practical tips and actions to help improve information security and better protect their privacy. Please subscribe to my show on iTunes, Stitcher, Player FM, Google Play, Overcast, TuneIn, CastBox, Podtoppin, or whatever your favorite podcast or news app is. And of course, please subscribe to my show on the Voice America Business Channel website, and then you'll be notified just as soon as a new show is available. I sincerely appreciate all of you worldwide who tune in. And, you know, I was so excited to see that after last week's show, there are now over 51,000 of you listening in worldwide. Thank you so much for listening. If you are interested in being a sponsor or advertiser for my show, please get in touch. And if you need help with information security or privacy, let me know that too. And please keep all of your feedback and questions coming in. So my uh, February Privacy Professor Tips message was published on January 30th. Did you get yours? Well, if not, please sign up for them. I've been providing them for free since 2007 in an effort to increase general awareness of information security and privacy issues and to provide a free awareness publication for organizations to send to their employees. You can sign up for them by going to privacyguidance.com and submitting your email in the box in the upper right part of your screen. So now I want to get to my tip for the week, and this has to do with our topic for today and is also related to my show from last week with Dr. Katina Michael, after which I got many different questions, and I got several questions about one topic in particular. So I had a few of you ask, if I'm using only HTTPS websites, do I need to use a VPN? Doesn't HTTPS make those connections secure? Well, my short answer is you need to use both. And I recommend that whenever you are online that you use a virtual private network or VPN with strong security and privacy features in addition to making sure that you use HTTPS websites, you know, at least for those sites where data is being exchanged. Now, very generally and simply stated, a VPN secures all the traffic 
that is within your computing device and going through uh, to the devices with which you are communicating. So it's creating what is often referred to as a secure pipe that no one who may be on your same wireless or hardwired networks can see into. Now, HTTPS is still necessary for sites for security and privacy, but they're securing traffic between the particular site and until it gets to your device. So others on your network would still be able to see that you went to a, a specific site and possibly more based on the associated port settings and other settings. That could reveal a lot about you and what you do. So let's just do a quick example. Let's say you visit a porn site and your banking site that both had HTTPS. Now, the HTTPS generally would keep others on your network from seeing the actual communications and data shared with those sites and, and you know, a lot of the other associated data about your activities. But if you are not using a VPN, those others on the network would generally be able to see that you were using those specific banking and porn sites. Now, with a VPN, then generally others on your network would not be able to tell you had visited those specific sites because all your connections to the sites that you visited would be encrypted and within that you know, impossible to see through a pipe, not impossible, but very, very hard. So my tip to you is to use both HTTPS and VPNs. So now on to our related topic today, encryption and why we need strong encryption. So I've talked before about, you know, my career early on and and how I got into this business. And back in the 1990s, when I built the information security and privacy program at a large multinational financial and healthcare corporation throughout the 1990s, one of the things I really worried about around the early to mid-1990s was how our management level staff and executives were using what was really newly available to them, email. And they were using email to start communicating with other folks outside of our corporation, outside of our business. And I discovered that they were sending some very sensitive information to outside entities through email at that early point in time in the internet. I was also worried about the risk that the executives and the IT development areas were bringing to our business with their practice of taking huge amounts of data on their newly available laptops. And actually, they were more like luggables. You probably heard that term used because they were so comparatively large uh, by today's standards. But, you know, the, the executives and the IT developers got to use these new tools. And I had already seen three of our CXO level executives actually leave their laptops on the top of their cars or hoods when they were getting ready to go home and then locking their doors. And then they drove off. And guess what? They didn't take their new fancy device off of the hood or the top of their car. So 
that device was thrown off somewhere between the parking garage and their homes. And, you know, I learned about this and I wondered how many other places are they leaving these laptops? So, you know, a lot of worries I had. And I determined I needed to find an encryption solution, particularly for those emails. I had... A, a whopping zero dollars in my budget for security tech at that time in the early 1990s. In the 1990s, also, there were very few encryption solutions, and I actually had vendors that were coming to me trying to sell encryption solutions, and they they were charging a large amount for those solutions, and the solutions that they had were incredibly complex to install, and they really weren't that easy for non-tech folks like our executives to use. So after research, I actually found a strong encryption solution that was amazingly offered for free, and I determined it could be used by those executives after I sat with them for a little bit. But still, compared to those other options that I didn't have a budget for anyway, you know, this encryption solution that I found really was pretty darn easy and pretty darn good. And oh yes, it was pretty good privacy or PGP. And today, I am truly so excited to welcome the creator of PGP and other solution protocols such as the ZRTP protocol and solutions such as Silent Phone and Z Phone, Dr. Philip Zimmerman. Dr. Zimmerman is the creator of Pretty Good Privacy PGP and it's an email encryption software package. It was originally designed as a human rights tool. So Dr. Zimmerman published PGP GP for free on the internet in 1991, and this made Phil the target of a three-year criminal investigation because the government considered that U.S. export restrictions for cryptographic software were violated when PGP was spread worldwide. But PGP nonetheless became the most widely used email encryption software in the world. After the government dropped its case in early 1996, Phil Zimmerman founded PGP Inc. Since 2004, Dr. Zimmerman's focus has been on secure telephony for the internet, developing the ZRTP protocol, and creating products that use it, including Silent Phone and Z Phone. Phil is an associate professor at Delft University of Technology in the Netherlands. Dr. Zimmerman was also inducted into the Internet Hall of Fame in 2012, and this was their inaugural year. So he's part of the very first group inaugurated into the Hall of Fame. Phil is co-founder of Silent Circle, a provider of secure communication services. Uh, services. Dr. Zimmerman also stated what is one of my very favorite quotes of all time, which is, quote, if privacy is outlawed, only outlaws will have privacy, end quote. Phil, thank you so much for being my guest today. Welcome to my show. It's my pleasure. 
Well, there's so much I have to ask you, but, you know, when just with my experience with PGP back in the 1990s and, you know, what I've read about you, I'm wondering, all those vendors were trying to charge me an arm and a leg for their encryption tool. What motivated you to create a free data encryption tool at a time when the Internet was used by very few businesses, let alone the public at large? Well, um, I... You know, I, I had originally hoped that I could make some money at it, but uh, it looked like the legislative environment was shifting in the direction of um, clamping down on en- encryption software um, because uh, there was some legislation uh, that had a sense of Congress resolution to um, require communication providers to provide a backdoor. And so I thought that was kind of alarming. It was indication, it was an indication that they might try to outlaw cryptography and so uh, I dropped my plans to make money at it and decided to give it away so um, but you know today I would say that today um, you know you were talking about VPNs earlier Mm -hmm. Um, in some cases uh, it's a good idea to pay for encryption services Uh, Mm -hmm. VPN providers there are some ones that offer it for free and some that charge money and the ones that offer it for free are going to sell you out they're going if you're not if you're not mm. paying if you're not um, paying for the product then you are the product. Um, so they will monitor all your traffic and they'll monetize it in some way. But if you pay them to do the service for you, then they'll uh, they'll leave you alone. They get their money from you know subscribers. Well. Um, that's a very good point, but I'm wondering, you said earlier about, you know, the back doors. So those vendors that came to me back in the 1990s, do you think that the, their encryption solutions had back doors built into them then? No, I'm not saying that. Uh, VPNs handle a lot of traffic because, mm-hmm. I mean, for example, I use a VPN to watch um, HBO in the U.S., Mm-hmm. Uh, because I like Game of Thrones and and Bill Maher and all those nice HBO shows, but uh, a lot of I can't get HBO here in the Netherlands um, on my Apple TV, so I use a VPN, mm-hmm. and um, that's a lot of megabytes, um, you know, you know, video traffic, and so it costs them money to provide the service. They cost the right. bandwidth and server time and you know infrastructure, and they have to pay for it somehow. So. If they charge me money, they're not going to monetize my traffic. They're not going to monitor, you know, what I'm doing through the VPN. Right. They're just going to charge me money, and that's how they're going to keep the lights on. Right. If I go to one of the free VPN providers, they're going to log everything, and they're going to find ways to monetize that. Right. But back, you know, comparing that back to the 1990s, though, just when this first got started, that that was a much different time. That was way before you know streaming video and so on. Oh yeah, so, sure. Yeah. Yeah. So so back when, when then, when you publish a piece of software, uh, you know, there's no additional cost um, of constant monthly, uh, you know, accumulation of paying for bandwidth or something. So yeah, um, at that time, um, there, you know. Uh, well, I, I mean, my, my goal for publishing it for free was purely to try to change the facts on the ground so that, um, so that it would make it harder to uh, outlaw cryptography. If everybody was using it already, then, you know, everybody would be a criminal. 
So I wanted to just complicate their efforts to, the government's efforts to uh, obstruct people from using strong encryption. Well, and you also help many businesses. Like with me, that was what I could use because back in the early 90s, there was virtually no budget given to most um, information security folks for technology. So I thank you for that. But, you know, many of our listeners don't know what happened as a result. I mentioned in your bio about criminal investigation, but I mean, you were under criminal investigation for providing really good free encryption. What was that like? I mean, what did you have to face um, as part of being under criminal investigation for those three years? Were you restricted from leaving the U.S.? No, uh, I was not. Um, mostly it was just sort of a lot of stress. I mean, mm. I, can, I consumed a lot of antacids. <laughs> mm, I bet. <laughs> um, at the time, it was quite stressful. Uh, in retrospect, it, um, it helped my career. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's always more pleasant to look at a problem like that in the rearview mirror. Yes. Yeah. I mean, what does not kill you makes you stronger, right? So um, <laughs> it, yeah. it, hindsight is, is twenty twenty. looking back on those things. So um, do you... Were there any, in your opinion, or from what you've seen, were there any general or long-term harms that those actions did to really stifle strong encryption use um, starting in the 1990s going forward? Or did you think that didn't really have uh, the government's Well, it did. Through through the decade of the 90s, it did uh, discourage uh, strong encryption, uh, Mm -hmm. at least for anything that might be exported. It took pretty much the whole decade of fighting for uh, the right to export strong encryption. My case was dropped without indicting me uh, in 1996, but the struggle to relax the laws on uh, export controls uh, continued through the rest of the decade. It wasn't until 2000 that uh, the government finally gave up and um, just said, okay, you can now export strong encryption software. Uh, mm-hmm. But there were also controls in, in Europe. I mean, um, you know, France had domestic controls on encryption. The U.S. didn't have domestic controls, although they did try to impose domestic mm-hmm. controls. The FBI tried to push the Clipper chip, which was an, a mm-hmm. device to encrypt uh, phone calls. Um, and they hoped everybody would put uh, put this into their phones, uh, all the manufacturers. Uh, <clears throat> but... Uh, but the invisible hand of the market did not accept uh, that. For some reason, it was quite perplexing to the FBI that uh, uh, no one wanted to buy products with the clipper chip in it. Um, so, uh, so domestic controls, you know, never got not never got very far in the U.S. But export controls prevailed until the end of the decade. Mm. Um, and uh, meanwhile, the French relaxed their domestic controls. Um, in the late 90s, and the British also had both domestic and export controls. Uh, not quite as not as aggressive as the French, but they were discouraging domestic use of strong encryption, and they backed off from that. And they also released their export controls when the U.S. did. So, you know, by 2000, things had really changed on both sides of the Atlantic, and um, and then strong encryption became pervasive on the internet. 
And then now we have the same effort again, it seems like, you know, the deja vu all over again here. So is the same argument being made today for encryption backdoors as it was in the 1990s? Or how has it evolved differently if it's not the same? It is, um, you know, law enforcement uh, is trying to bring back these controls. Um, And they're... It's a lost cause because strong encryption is firmly entrenched. It's in all of our browsers. Uh, we have pervasive encryption on the internet. Every, you know, in fact, um, almost all websites um, automatically put you on uh, HTTPS, you know, uh, TLS mm-hmm. encrypted tunnels. Um, it's just everywhere. And plus, we have end to end encryption. Um, with uh, silent phone and signal and uh, wire and even WhatsApp has it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it would be very difficult to, to control it. Um, now, I think it's the end-to-end aspect of what's on the menu today that has really set them off. Mm. Um, you know, encrypting your web browser to your bank or to Amazon to order something for e-commerce purposes doesn't seem to bother them as much as uh, end-to-end. If it's mm-hmm. just between you and a server, that you know they've learned to accept it, accept that. But they really, they really get upset with the pervasive uh, uh, proliferation of um, end-to-end encryption, and that seems to be where the motivation is coming from for their reactions against strong encryption. Especially like you mentioned WhatsApp and uh, how so many people are using that. And, you know, we can even watch the news and see how different people are like, oh, let's switch to WhatsApp so we can be, you know, hide something here. Basically, that's probably part of their motivation there. Now, in the case of WhatsApp, um, you know, WhatsApp is is owned by uh, Facebook and Facebook, Mm -hmm. um, they can't see the content of the conversation because it's end-to-end encrypted and and the keys are not shared with the server but they can exploit the um, metadata they know mm-hmm. who is talking to who they know um, all kinds of details about who's talking to who mm-hmm. I mean you know there's a billion and a half whatsapp users a billion and a half mm-hmm. and and you know and a lot of them are Facebook customers um, mm-hmm. I should say Facebook users they're not customers. Facebook's customers are the ones that's, that uh, that pay them to advertise mm-hmm. or, or simply buy the data from Facebook. Um, so Facebook will make extensive use of the metadata. They know exactly who talked to who, when, how long, the message links, the phone, the you know the the converse, the voice conversation link lengths, and they they log that meticulously and they use it to build up a compositive of. Uh, uh, trying to build a detailed picture of your life. And that can be very revealing, too. I mean, that metadata can oftentimes provide information that is more valuable than the actual words being said themselves. Well, that's in right. Communication. From, from a government surveillance perspective, uh, metadata is uh, can be even more useful than the content. I mean, if they were purely looking at just the content, then the content is often, you know, not as useful as one might think. People might try to obscure the um, 
the content. Uh, mm-hmm. They might they might speak in some oblique fashion, but the metadata of who's calling who provides a uh, a detailed map of all the associations. And for um, you know for um, trying to figure out terrorist organizations or organized crime, uh, the metadata is uh, enormously valuable for intel agencies and law enforcement. Right. And then you know the, the people who are participating in the communication. So if, if you wanted to go to them directly, um, that's also another pathway to take to get more information. Yeah. And, you know, intel agencies, what they typically do is they'll attempt to um, put some malware on the endpoints. So even mm. if you're using strong encryption, uh, and even if they can't attack that cryptanalytically, uh, which they usually can't if it's if it's a well-designed product. Mm-hmm. Uh, what they can do is they can uh, is they can do an attack on the endpoints and attempt to install malware that will exfiltrate the cryptographic keys so that they can decrypt the content. Uh, right. And and so uh, intel agencies have amassed a, a tremendous degree of competence at at injecting uh, malware on on their targets. Yeah, and using uh, different types of social engineering uh, methods to get them to reveal things that maybe they didn't realize that they were were revealing. Um, We're coming up on a break here in a couple of minutes, but I want to start a conversation that I'm sure we'll need to continue. Uh, And that is, do you ever think that there is a situation or time when encryption backdoors would be justified. Okay. Do you want me to try to say something about that now or after well, the break? Maybe, yeah. Why don't you go ahead and give us just a quick thought on that or maybe an example uh, of how that may or may not have have been beneficial. And then after the break, we can get into a lot more detail. Well, okay. So first I'd like to say, no, I don't think there should be backdoors in products. Because when you put a backdoor in the product, uh, it's a danger to the entire user population, mm-hmm. not just the targets of uh, of a uh, of a uh, of an investigation or um, you know uh, intel uh, targets. Um, targeted um, targeting uh, criminal suspects or or suspected terrorist uh, is one thing. But putting a backdoor in everyone's product, millions of people using a product that has a backdoor, I think is never justified. Uh, Intel agencies have other ways of attacking their targets, and I'm glad that they do have other ways of attacking their targets. Uh, but they, they, you know, they can be selective about it. Right. Uh, and- a, pervasive, a, a, a widespread backdoor that all of us are forced to use is is just uh, is bad for society. It's bad for civil liberties. Um, you know, drift net fishing is 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 bad. Uh, fishing with a hook and a line to go after a single target or a small group of targets. Uh, I I think that's what we pay them to do. That's what we right. want them to do. Well, I think that's really great food for thought for uh, folks to think about during the break. So now it's time for a quick break to hear from our valued sponsors that I do appreciate so much. I'm speaking today with Dr. Philip Zimmerman, creator of PGP and co-founder of Silent Phone and Z Phone. I'm your host, Rebecca Harold, the privacy professor. Contact me with questions and comments about this show as well as 
show topic suggestions using my email, RebeccaHerald at RebeccaHerald.com and through my PrivacyGuidance.com website. Please stay with us. We'll be right back after these important messages from my sponsors. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. The Privacy Professor is your trusted source for effective information security, privacy, and compliance advice, compliance tools, education, consulting, expert witness services, and board positions. Visit us online at privacyprofessor.org. Rebecca Harold and Associates offers information security products, privacy, and compliance tools, education, and consulting. Rebecca also provides keynote speeches and her free Privacy Professor monthly tips messages. She has published since 2007. Visit privacyprofessor.org for help and answers to your questions. Have you heard about Symbus360.com? The Symbus system includes information security, privacy, and compliance management, policies, procedures, and forms, third-party and vendor management, training and awareness, breach response and management, employee tasks and assets management, and risk management automation. Symbus also offers Alien Vault Unified IT Security Management at reduced pricing and also cyber liability insurance with limits up to $25 million. You need to find out more about the Symbus system. Visit Symbus360.com. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. You are listening to Data Security and Privacy with the Privacy Professor. If you have a question or comment about the program, feel free to send an email to Rebecca Harold at RebeccaHerald.com. That's Rebecca Harold at RebeccaHerald.com. Now, back to Data Security and Privacy with the Privacy Professor. Welcome back to Data Security and Privacy with the Privacy Professor on the Voice America's Business Channel. I'm your host, Rebecca Harold. I'm speaking today with Dr. Philip Zimmerman, creator of PGP and Associate Professor of Cybersecurity at Delft University of Technology in the Netherlands. And we're talking about the risk of having backdoors built into encryption solutions. So, you know, we started our discussion right before the break and we, the the discussion was about is there ever a situation or time when encryption backdoors are justified. Um, so, Phil, you know, you were talking about having backdoors for everyone instead of targeting just specific folks uh, if you're interested in, you know, finding out about particular people instead of making everyone, I guess, a suspect? Uh, yeah. Um, I think that, uh, you know, historically, um, when they get a court order to wiretap a single target, uh, the court has to decide whether to let them do it. Uh, nobody, no law enforcement agency could approach a, 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 the judiciary and ask for a wiretap on the entire population. Um, but if they say they want to wiretap one person, or maybe a, a, a small group of people engaged in a, uh, a criminal conspiracy, they can get the court to uh, agree to that. And so, um, 
you know, what the way that's typically done now is, you know, maybe they'll put microphones close to their targets or mm-hmm. they'll put malware on their computers. We, I'm, I don't, I mean, I think we should try to improve our computers so that they're resistant mm-hmm. to malware uh, insertion. Uh, and we should try as hard as we can to prevent those kinds of attacks. But that's what, um, but that's what intel agencies do right now. And it's kind of their stock and trade. Um, so uh, I'm, I'm not as worried about that as I am worried about um, trying to put a backdoor in a product that will be then sold to millions of people um, or, or, or provided to millions of people. Driftnet phishing is harmful. Uh, phishing, you know, with a hook and a line or, mm-hmm. or a, 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 you know, a spear phishing against a, a single target is, you know, that's, I, I view that morally in a different way. Um, assuming that th- you have a court order that says you, that they're allowed to go after a single target. Um, so. Well, yeah, and what worries me about that, too, is, I mean, sure, if it's there for millions of people, for everyone using a product, what happens when other people are seeing that that availability is there, and it's like, oh, well, you know, here's another here's another reason yeah. why we need to get to it. Yeah, it's mass surveillance. Um, I mean, I, I think mass surveillance is, is coming, and it's already here, but, you know, it's coming even worse and it's going to be terribly harmful worldwide. The Chinese are doing mass surveillance on a scale that no one could have imagined a generation ago. Uh, now they have AI uh, behind all their video cameras doing facial recognition. Um, and the British do that too, but the Chinese are doing it on a grand scale that no one has ever seen. And they're keeping track of everyone's movements and who they're talking to, who they're associating with. And political opposition is impossible in China. No one can get traction to form any kind of political opposition. And it's really becoming a, an extremely dystopian environment. And they're going to export that technology to other autocratic dictatorships around the world. And then they're going to start exporting it to Western democracies. Um, so they're going to perfect it and they're going to, they're going to push it out to the rest of the world. So they, they can do it like no one has ever done it before. And that is is terrifying. Oh, yeah. Uh, To have AI grow, uh, you know, they're actually ahead of the U.S. in AI. And they're especially um, focusing their efforts in AI on mass surveillance and and immortal artificial intelligence that relentlessly tries to uh, track every movement of every single human being in China. And then, you know, later the world. I mean, that's my sort of, you know... That's that's my biggest fear right now. In fact, I fear well, that about AI more than more than the usual, um, you know, um, other kinds of fears of AI killing us all. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, AI too depends upon the quality and the um, the quality of the algorithms being created. So there's a lot of bias that seems like it could be injected into the the AI algorithms that will be better for some and much, much worse off for others. Um, so that's where encryption comes into play for at least what we can yeah. use uh, well, to protect the, one that. Of, one of the arguments that law enforcement currently makes is that they, 
they there's a lot of hand wringing on their side uh, about mm-hmm. going dark. You know, they they say, "Oh no, we're going dark because of end-to-end encryption." Well, they are enjoying a golden age of surveillance where they have unbelievable capabilities in surveillance. Where uh, you know they they get a total information awareness picture where they can see everything that's happening, and uh, they just can't see the actual content of our end-to-end secure communication. It's almost like it's like this massive uh, 4K display that has a couple of black pixels that, you know, that they can't see into. And they're mm-hmm. complaining about going dark. They're not going dark, you know. They're asking us to hand over the last few remaining pixels that they can't see. And, uh, you know, we need to hold tight to these pixels for the tiny shred of privacy that still remains in our control. Well, yeah, and not only that, but it seems like they don't realize there's a lot of strong encryption solutions that are being created in other parts of the world that if somebody, if the criminals or the the uh, terrorists want to stay, um, you know, have theirs encrypted, they're still going to use strong encryption. The only ones that won't have it then are those that um, are being scooped up in the large net that you talked about before, wouldn't it be? Yeah, yeah. I mean, where are this, the other encryption solutions that are strong being created elsewhere in the world? I know there's, I know some folks, um, you know, in Europe that are working on some, and I mean, I'm sure well, you know. Well, you know, I, I live in Europe. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yes, there's a few products over here like that. Um, and uh, in fact, I had one that I, you know, our, our company, Silent Circle, was in, in Geneva for some years. And, uh, and then it, uh, now it's, now it's in the U S although it's in a different form and it's not the same company now, but, um, uh, yeah, there's strong encryption, um, all over the world, Mm -hmm. but the, but the big picture is that we're losing the battle for pervasive surveillance. Um, and, um, I feel like, uh, we're running out of ammo. Um, you know, it's it's holding the the ocean back with a with a fork. <laughs> yeah. Well, with that in mind, then what would you recommend to our listeners? Like, if they're listening and they're like, "Well, we want to find an encryption solution that does not have back doors built in, even if we might be using something that does have a way into it," like. Uh, you know, we've talked about some of these things yeah. that might be forced. What what should they do? Get additional encryption uh, to use well, within the the other type. You know, it depends on the kind of problem that you're trying to solve. Mm-hmm. If you're trying to solve message encryption, uh, Signal is a good solution. Uh, silent phone uh, is is available uh, still, uh, and um, there's a there's a product from Germany called Wire. It's similar to Signal. Um, I, I wouldn't recommend WhatsApp as as the preferred mm-hmm. solution because because uh, Facebook uh, aggressively tries to collect the metadata and exploits that, and they're also going to integrate it more into the rest of the Facebook product, and that means that they're really going to have a firm grip on the metadata. But for now, at least, um, they're still mm-hmm. using strong encryption for the content. But I would recommend uh, switching from WhatsApp to uh, Signal or Wire. Um, but, you know, uh, 
For email encryption, it's a bit more complex. Uh, email encryption has changed over the years. Uh, email has a huge attack surface uh, that goes far beyond just the encryption. The fact that you know you can uh, even even without encryption, um, just the fact that you can click on a PDF file that is an t- attached to an email means that your computer can be taken over with malware. If John Podesta uh, had not clicked on a PDF file for, sent by Russian uh, intelligence, then uh, the presidential election would have gone the other way, perhaps. Um, so, you know, email has got an enormous attack surface, and it's it's much more complicated to protect email. Right. Um, so, uh, you know, and also, what about your web surfing habits? Well, mm-hmm. You know, you can protect the content of, of what you do um, with uh, the pervasive use of HTTPS, which is, you know, becoming much more pervasive now. But your Internet service provider uh, is quite possibly, and in fact, increasingly likely to be collecting uh, traffic, uh, you know, traffic analysis data and logging that. And the solution to that is to use a VPN, and mm-hmm. um, but it's not a perfect solution because it, mm-hmm. you know, at some point in the future, uh, they might put pressure on VPN providers to uh, to log that traffic and to um, make it available for um, you know for government access. So, you know, they might not be able to decrypt the content of the HTTPS link, but they might be able to go eventually to the VPN providers. Now, remember I said that there's different kinds of VPN providers, ones that mm-hmm. already log all your activity because they're trying to find a way to monetize it and because you don't pay them. And the others that you pay, and so they don't log it. But nonetheless, we could imagine at some point in the future, the government coming to them and saying, we want you to keep logs, you know. Mm-hmm. And that... There, that could be fought in court on the grounds that they're not keeping logs, and so it shouldn't. It's not appropriate to ask them to keep logs if they're not keeping logs. The legal well, uh, environment for resisting the government trying to make you do what you normally don't do as a service provider is a legally interesting question. Um, so we have to fight back with not only technology, but we have to fight back in policy space. Yes, and you know, related to that, it, it just seems like uh, the the folks making the laws or from the intelligence agency who are pressuring this, oftentimes it doesn't seem like they really have a good understanding of the technology. I mean, they're focused on one goal, and it's like this is what we want to do, and tech. Yeah. Anybody can do anything in tech. Is there any? I know you're in Amster, live in Amsterdam now, but you, I anticipate you probably keep up on U.S. Uh, government activities, or especially with regard to encryption. All, but are there any U.S. lawmakers that have a good understanding of technology that you think um, could do anything yeah. to support that? Well, yeah, there are. Um, I, I remember Senator Wyden uh, was uh, interested in this as a policy issue. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I don't know what's come of that. I've been so focused on uh, the bigger issues of, uh, you know, uh, having our president uh, 
be elected by the Kremlin. <laughs> so that's consumed Congress's attention and, and yeah. mine as well. And so I, uh, I haven't been paying close attention to what, what used to draw my attention in, in, uh, in, in the public policy areas of encryption in, in Congress. But, um, but yeah, there's, I mean, there are uh, a number of lawmakers that, that care about this. And, you know, we, we should try to, you know, we should, well, if we can get any of, of their mental bandwidth, uh, we, should, we should get them to pay attention to this. Um, yeah. Maybe, so. there, maybe, there will, maybe there will come a time when they're less busy on the elephant in the room and they can redivert their attention back to this. Might be something good for the general public, like to uh, start making more phone calls and writing letters to their representatives uh, and senators, perhaps. Uh, even though you know one or two letters or calls on their own may not have an effect, if you get enough people expressing concern, that should, uh, from a constituency standpoint, the related senators and representatives should take notice of that. You would think. Yeah. So you know, I want to. I, oh, go ahead. Okay, go ahead. Go ahead. No, I want to hear your thought. I didn't want to interrupt you. Well, I was saying that um, I look at our intelligence agencies as um, that their main job is to is to is to try to provide knowledge of what's happening uh, outside the borders of the U.S. Mm-hmm. I, I generally think of intel agencies as uh, for for all kinds of countries, especially democracies, is that their main job should be to provide intelligence about, um, uh, you know, foreign intelligence, mm-hmm. um, and and not to turn their powerful tools of collection on their domestic population, because their domestic population has to vote and elect politicians that are supposed to control those intelligence agencies, and so if they turn their powerful surveillance tools against their own uh, voting public then it allows the incumbents to exercise control over their own domestic populations. And that provides uh, an opportunity for hanging on to the incumbency. Mm. Um, and, and so that can lead to a dystopian outcome. I think that a foreign intelligence agency, I think that we, we hired them to do their job as a foreign intelligence agency to try to gather intelligence about foreign governments, you know, to see mm-hmm. what Russia is doing or what China is doing or what North Korea is doing or Iran. And, you know, that's their job. We want them to do that job. We don't want them spying on Americans. I mean, the same it would be true for the British. I don't think the British GCHQ should be spying on uh, British citizens living inside of uh, their own country for all those reasons, you know, that that. Foreign intelligence services, if they turn their powerful tools against their own populations, uh, it can lead to a dystopian outcome. Oh, definitely. Uh, They're supposed to. Like China doing that, Mm -hmm. and Russia does that, and North Korea does that, and those are correlated with dystopian societies. So, um, so that's that's a distinction that I, you know, would like to. I mean, of course. People who live in Europe don't want the NSA spying on them. But, mm-hmm. you know, I always felt that, you know, I don't want anyone to be spying on me. But, you know, during the Cold War, if I was living in California and um, 
you know, let's say the East German Stasi were spying on me in California, I, they probably didn't have much collection capability against the United States at that time. But if they did, I would find it kind of annoying, but I wouldn't worry about the Stasi kicking my door in in the middle of the night and arresting me and taking me to prison. Uh, you know, they're in a foreign country. They, they don't have control over my life. Um, whereas they spy, them spying on their own citizens, that's a different matter. They can, you know, find reason to kick the door in and, and arrest their domestic population and send them to prison camps. So there really is a difference between mm-hmm. uh, an intel agency spying on their own citizens and, and gathering intelligence about uh, what's going on in other countries. Thank you for that. That's such an important point, and I, you explained it so well, so thank you for that. And I think as people are listening to that, they might be thinking, you know, they heard about your silent phone and Z phone and ZRTP protocol. I'm sure they're thinking, well, are those some things that we can use? Are they available for us to use uh, for our own privacy protection or for encryption? Um, so, you know... Do you want to give any information, like either about how your ZRTP protocol works, or maybe the silent phone and Z phone? How, if that's well, those are even available? Z, Z phone was a precursor to silent phone. It's something okay. I did many years ago as a uh, proof of concept. Um, but um, silent phone was the product that I spent quite a bit of time on for like five years. Uh, but silent circle uh, did not do so well commercially, and. Um, it has uh, shifted into a kind of another entity now uh, mm-hmm. who still operates silent phone as a service. And so it's still available, um, but um, it, it, it hasn't reached the network effect numbers that we'd hope for. Um, so, uh, but if you go to the silent circle website, you can, you can get it, but you have to pay for it. And it's mm-hmm. the, it's the requirement to pay for it that that kind of inhibits the network effect. And, uh, and so, but Signal, on the other hand, is free. Um, it's not my product, but I, I don't think it has any back doors in it. Um, uh, I, I think my product's better. <laughs> sure. <on> phone. <laughs> but, um, but so if people would really like to use what, what I, what my favorite uh, end-to-end secure product, they can get Silent Phone from the Silent Circle website. Great. And then also, how about your ZRTP protocol? Is that found in um, multiple types of products? Well, it's in uh, Silent Phone, of course. Um, mm-hmm. And um, it's, in, it's in a couple of open source products, but those products are not commercial products. They don't have, um, they don't have, uh, I, I don't see them as having quite, the market footprint as um, commercial products have. Okay. So um, when you think about that ZRTP protocol, how how is that different from, you know, other types of encryption communications? I mean, I'm well, assuming... Well, ZRTP, ZRTP yeah. is designed specifically for voice over IP. Okay. It's not designed for text messaging or email encryption or... Um, you know, web browsers connecting to your bank or something like that. It's a protocol designed for one purpose, and that's for two human beings to talk to each other through a voice over IP channel to encrypt that channel. 
mm-hmm. to negotiate the keys for that channel and to have and the two people actually participate in the protocol uh, in ways that other protocols don't have. Um, and so, um, uh, it, you know, it's it, it's it's a tailor made protocol for human to human secure communications. And so it has protections against a man-in-the-middle attack that other protocols don't have. Uh, mm. And and so, in, in my view, it's it's the best protocol for uh, VoIP encryption. Well, and that's so popular right now, especially with uh, FaceTime and, and everything else that people are using um, to communicate with each other with. So that's definitely something that um, I think our listeners, if you want to check those out why and you do a lot of facetime and other uh types of skype and other things uh that sounds like would be something good so we're getting yeah. close i we're would getting... i would not recommend skype as a secure communications channel <laughs> so so we wouldn't be able to uh have an add-on product uh that includes your zrtp protocol that skype would work through uh well that's an interesting question. The, my old ancient Z phone uh, project could possibly do something with that. Um, but I don't know. Um, yeah, I've Maybe never so. tried Z phone with Skype, but <laughs> <laughs> Maybe that's Z-phone, something. Z phone was a filter that could uh, be used in combination with uh, some, uh, a wide variety of white clients. I don't know if it would work with Skype, but uh, it might, might. Yeah. But Z, but Z phone is no longer supported, so. Ah, uh, okay, okay. That might be a fun thing to, to fiddle around with sometime, huh? So uh, we're getting close to the end of our show. Gosh, it came so quickly. But I do want to ask you, you know, in, in uh, one or two minutes, what's a key point about encryption and the use of backdoors or anything else that we've been talking about today that you want listeners to really take away from listening to our show today? Well, I think that, we need to fight back in policy space. We can't solve the whole thing with uh, technology. Uh, and in particular, we need to push back. Well, we need to push back hard against this effort to put back doors in uh, encryption products, especially end-to-end encryption products. Uh, it's outrageous that they're uh, pressing for this. Uh, it's short-sighted. It's harmful to society. Uh, it's helpful to foreign intelligence agencies that want to break into these because they will exploit backdoors that are supposed to be uh, designed for the good guys to use, but the bad guys will use them. Mm-hmm. Um, and so if we don't want the Russians to spy on American communications, we better not put any backdoors in our products. Um, the Chinese will exploit backdoors if we put backdoors in our products. Uh, you know, the... I, the Policymakers who were pushing for this uh, are short-sighted, and they don't understand what a Pandora's box this would open if we if we just uh, stupidly did what they're asking for. Um, this and, and you know, there's also just a wide variety of other uh, surveillance that is that is closing in on on our open society. It's a danger to liberal democracy. Pervasive surveillance not just uh, about encryption backdoors, but pervasive surveillance is going to strangle liberal democracy worldwide in the long run. And we have to fight back as much as we can. And pretty much we're going to have to put a lot more emphasis in policy space uh, to fight back. 
Well, thank you for that. I think those are such important points, and I hope that our listeners uh, can truly start taking some of their own steps. So thank you so much for being my guest today, Phil. I sure appreciate it. My pleasure. So today I've been speaking with Dr. Phil Zimmerman, creator of PGP, and we've been talking about the need for strong encryption and also surveillance. Please send me feedback about this show. Would you like to hear more about this topic? Please let me know. And do you have a topic to suggest that I cover? You can contact me with your uh, comments and questions using Rebecca Harold at RebeccaHerald.com. Please tune into the show each week. If you cannot make our scheduled live time, you will be able to listen to all of the recordings whenever you want. You can find the recordings of all my past shows on all those different um, podcast apps as well as the VoiceAmerica.com business channel website. I urge you all to really notice and stay aware of information security and privacy issues as you go about your daily activities, go to your job and do your daily work, or encounter anything else involving your personal information, how it's secured and potentially used in ways that could impact your privacy. Until our next show. Ask those you do business with and you work for if they are doing all they can to protect the information you've entrusted to them. And let your lawmakers know what you think about what they're doing, too. Be privacy aware in the week ahead. Bye for now. Thank you for tuning in this week. Data Security and Privacy with the Privacy Professor can be heard live every Tuesday at 2 p.m. Pacific Time and 5 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Until next week, stay safe.